I want to thank the worship team for leading us this morning and I want to uh, add my thanks to Can- and welcome to Candice for all those who are visiting with us this morning and to those of you who are joining us on live stream this morning. And before I get into the message, I do want to thank you for praying for us. Last week I asked you to pray for Sham and me as we are away in Spain ministering to international workers from about five different countries in Europe and we certainly were conscious throughout of your prayers. Uh, God gave us grace and opportunities for many conversations, not just in the preaching, but in the many, many conversations over lunch, over dinner. Uh, Rupin and Lena said to say hi, you know, they were just delighted to see us. And the two little boys are fluently speaking accent-free Spanish now, you know, correcting their mother once in a while in their language learning. So thank you. Thank you so much for your prayers. We are so aware of being sent and set apart by a congregation that loves us and cares for us. And it's always, it was never... I'd rather be here ultimately than anywhere else. This is where I love to be. This is where I love to come back to. Several years ago, a senior executive from a large bank in the city uh, was sharing with me about some things they had learned in a training session about what motivates people when an organization has to go through change. And more often than not, the benefits of change are put forward to the employees or whoever. And... In this training session, they learned this, that the benefits of change are a good motivator when things are not going well in an organization. But when things are going relatively well in an organization, then the benefits of change do not motivate that much. Rather, the cost of not changing then becomes a much more powerful motivator. Where we are this morning in this series on living as called people in a driven world brought that insight to my, to my mind again. So far we've looked uh, in in the first message on living in a covenantal framework, uh, that God is in a covenant relationship with us as a fundamental framework for living as called people. We live in responsive mode, exchanging our thoughts and our ways for his thoughts and his ways. The second message followed up on learning to listen to scripture, uh, read scripture as the voice of God by immersion, so that through that means his thoughts and ways become accessible to us, and that our prayers become responsive speech. And then in the third message, we looked at how we can shape the content of our intercession by bringing onto the radar screen of our lives a God who is sovereign, a God who is a creator, a God who reveals, and a God who is at work in history around us. And in in, in these three cases, I've, I've attempted to portray or paint for us the kind of life that results from that. So it's, it's motivation by the benefits of change, if you will. Today, I want to go to the other extreme. Today we're going to focus not so much on teaching per se, but as a story. We want to look at a driven man in scripture. And look at the consequences of what a driven life can lead us to. So that for some of you, for whom the benefits of change, of living a call life, has for whatever reason not motivated you. Maybe the sobering picture of the cost, of the, of the consequences of a driven life might add to it. Perhaps the two of them work together in tandem in our lives. It's a story of a man named Saul who was Israel's first king. He made a good beginning. Uh, chapter 9 verse 2. Uh, you know what? Don't bother reading it. I'm not even got the scripture verses there. Because I want you to listen to the story. I want you to enter the story. And he, Saul's father, Kish, had a son whose name was Saul. A handsome man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward he was taller than any of the people. So he was a physically impressive man. Samuel invites him to a feast and kind of hints at a special destiny that he has for him. And Saul responds this way. Verse 21. Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? 
And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? He was a man who was very aware of his insignificant background. So he was a humble man. Later after Samuel had anointed him and sent him away, uh, having told him that powerful things were going to happen to him, in chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 we read these words. When Saul turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him and the Spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied among them. There was an anticipation of Pentecost. So he was a man who had genuine spiritual experiences, a changed heart by God and the Spirit of God coming upon him. Well, then there came the time for the public ceremony and they couldn't find the guy anywhere. So in chapter 10, verse 22, we read, So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said to them, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. He wasn't really a man who was, he was reluctant for the limelight. He was hiding from these big occasions. He wasn't used to all this bigness and grandeur. So they discovered him, flushed him out of the baggage and commissioned him. And then came the first kind of sour note in the story. Because it says here in verse 27 of chapter 10. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents. But he held his peace. Well, you think with me for a minute. If you've just kind of just been elevated to a position of power and your future destiny as king has been underlined. And people get upset with you. You can do things to them. You can get angry. But he held his peace. He was a man who knew how to control his anger. At the same time, he also was a man who knew when to get angry. Because very quickly after this, he hears a report that one of the outpost uh, towns in Israel called Jabesh Gilead had been threatened by the Ammonites. And this is what happens to Saul when he hears that. Chapter 10, 11, verse 6. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled. This man who knew how to control anger when his own honor was somehow sullied, learned how to be angry at the things that angered the heart of God. Which, by the way, is the character quality of meekness. It has to do with being angry. And we've learned that before. Being angry with the right people for the right reason for the right amount of time. So I was a meek man. Well then finally, after Saul's military victory over the Ammonites and rescuing the people of Jabesh Gilead, People come to him and say, now, now you can deal with those guys that didn't like you. Remember Saul? And Saul says in chapter 11 verse 13, But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. He was a merciful man. Now listen, you've got to look at that and say, that's a pretty impressive guy. Huh? Might be a good candidate for the next preaching pastor, right? Yeah, anyway, certainly, certainly, we'd love to have a person like this on our boards, leading our teams. Now look at the list, physically impressive, humble, genuine spiritual experiences. A man who was reluctant for the limelight, merciful man who knew how to control anger. Who wouldn't want him? I want to fast forward the video of this man's story. We're going to jump over five chapters that are critical in this story. From chapter 11 to 16, we're going to pick up the story in the 16th chapter. And we will see a very sad, prolonged, downward spiral of the same man. I want to trace the downward spiral. Chapter 16, verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful or evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. The next chapter is a well-known story of David and Goliath. And as every child knows, Goliath is killed by David with a slingshot. And David comes back triumphant. And the singers of Israel, as they always celebrated military victories, were singing. And now Saul gets really upset. 
for verse chapter 18 verse 8 and 9 says and Saul was very angry gone was his meekness he was very angry and this saying displeased him they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed only thousands the man's getting jealous now and what more can he have but the kingdom so now anger and jealousy inappropriate anger and jealousy begin to take over and as Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians, inappropriate anger always gives a foothold for the devil. And that's exactly what happens for the very next verse says, the next day a harmful spirit or evil spirit from God rushed upon Saul. So now we have increasing influences of evil in his life. The story gathers momentum and there are no less than six attempted murders by Saul. Six times he tries to take David's life and he fails. There are two very shallow attempts at repentance that are quickly replaced by that anger and jealousy and hatred. And then finally he finds himself with a prospective um, battle again as the Philistines are gathering. And so this man, fearful of what's going to happen to him, prays. Chapter 28, verse 5 and 6. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. But when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. A man who had long since abandoned waiting on God in any meaningful way is not likely to suddenly get answers to desperate prayers. So Saul does something that was explicitly forbidden. In the Old Testament, witchcraft and going to mediums and all of those things was explicitly forbidden. But that's exactly what it says. He said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who's a medium that I may go into her and inquire of her. So six attempted murders and now witchcraft. And, so, and they find the medium and so she um, conjures up what in sorcery circles are known as familiar spirits. But she herself is terrified when God takes over. And instead of, instead of this familiar spirit that she manipulated, Samuel showed up, who had died by this time. And Samuel pronounces judgment upon Saul and says, next, tomorrow, tomorrow you're going to die. And that's exactly what happens. In fact, First Samuel chapter 31 verse 4, it says, Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me, because he'd been injured. Lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. Suicide. If you were to write an epitaph for this man's life, it would be his own words in chapter 26, verse 21. Behold, I have acted like a fool and have erred greatly. Now here's my question. What takes such an incredible beginning and makes it result in such a horrible ending? Look at it. Just look at it again. Let it sink in. Physically impressive, humble, reluctant for the limelight, genuine spiritual experiences, meek and merciful. What takes a man like that and with a horrible ending, with increasing influence of evil, gripped by anger and jealousy, attempted murder, witchcraft and finally suicide? an important question right so now we wind the clock a video back and to get to those critical chapters in the middle because you see Saul had one fatal flaw oh by the way all this good beginning lasted seven days anybody can be impressive for seven days he had one fatal flaw that has Four different manifestations to it and taken together are an incredible picture of what driven people are like. The ones that are marching this way. Let's kind of unpack that right now. After Samuel had initially told him about his destiny and those amazing things that happened to him, 
He said, you go to Gilgal and wait for me, because I will come and do the offering. This is what happens. Chapter 13, verses 8 to 12. He, Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. In, in Israel, the office of, office of priest and king were completely separate. No, not even a king could ever dare to take upon himself the responsibility of a priest. But Saul did it. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and the word in the original probably better translated, I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. His troops were scattering and he was being held up by a religious ritual and the priest wasn't showing up. So he said, let me just get that over with because there's a battle to be fought. This is the first mark of a fatal flaw, impatient worship. Get worship over with so we can get on to the real agenda that is before us, which is that of winning the battle. Now Saul paid a heavy price for this. When you look at Samuel's judgment upon him, we might actually be kind of shocked. It seems like an overreaction. But maybe God doesn't think of these things the way you and I think of them. But this is what Samuel said to him. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not get seven days. And his kingdom's gone because he was impatient with the things of God when it came to worship. Now, Saul had no idea that this is what was at stake. But you know what's even more amazing? Is what the man did and didn't do. I would like to think that if I made a mistake like that, that I'd just run after Samuel and say, please have mercy on me, Samuel. I'm I'm just a weak guy. I kind of blew it. I shouldn't have been that impatient. I'm sorry. Give me another chance, right? I would like to think that all of us would be like that. He didn't do that. You know what it says? He counted his men. That was what was on his heart. You know why he did this in the first place? The troops were scattering. The people were running. His big question wasn't, he's just been told I've lost the kingdom. He says, but was I successful in my agenda? Which was to keep the people. His focus was on accomplishing his goals. Doesn't matter if I lost the kingdom. Well, as the story continues... Maybe Sam, we get a sense that Saul might be getting it right first. Chapter 14, verse 35. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he had built. The first quiet time in a hectic, frenzied life. But unfortunately, like we will see, everything in Saul is surface deep. You go below the surface and you don't find anything there. Because verse 36 says, Then Saul said, he built an altar and then he said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. Agenda again. (laughs) And And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God. The man built an altar but forgot to pray. That's utilitarian worship. A tip of the hat to God. Going through the motions. But you're really in charge. Winning the battle, that's all that was on his mind. He even built an altar, but somebody had to tell him, Hey, can you pray first? 
Well, the priest had kind of exposed it, so he now had to pray, so he does. Verse 37. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But God did not answer him that day. Utilitarian worship, no less than impatient worship, fails to impress God. You know, sending up telegraphic prayers as a tip of the hat to God, or praying because Pastor Sundar says we should, while you're busy focusing on your, our, our agendas, doesn't impress God. And you're not likely to hear anything back from Him. But the, again, how does Saul react? Is he anguished? Does he say, God, you got to speak to me? No, he's a man of action. He just takes charge. He said, oh, there must be a problem. There must be sin in the camp. <laughs> Never occurred to him that it was him. In fact, we won't take time to look at it, but if you read the story, he almost put his son Jonathan at risk because of what he did. That's another thing driven people do. They endanger the lives of people that are close to them because of their drivenness. Often families. Anyway, the story is reaching its climax. There's one final assignment that Samuel gives to Saul. He says, you need to go and destroy the Amalekites. If you look in the history of Israel, you will read that the Amalekites were people that consistently harassed the Israelites. And especially when they were on their journey to, from Egypt, they would pick off the weak uh, and the children from the back. And so the Amalekites were doomed. And Saul was sent to completely destroy everybody. The king, people, animals, the whole world. Well, Saul doesn't quite obey. So he comes back with the king and he comes back with all the healthy animals. And so, of course, as he's coming back, the animals are all bleating. <laughs> Can't hide them. <laughs> and so Samuel comes to Saul and says, uh, What's this? What's the noise I hear? You didn't obey God? Look at Saul's response. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on a mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, which he was told not to do. Uh, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. God said everybody, he spared the king. And then he continues to explain about the animals. But the people took of the spoils, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Can I paraphrase Saul for a minute? This is what he's saying to Samuel. Yes, Samuel, I know, I know this. Uh, all those animals, fat, juicy, perfect sheep, and didn't make any sense to kill them. Oh, I got rid of all the lame and the useless ones. But didn't God tell us to give him our best? It made so much more sense to me to bring them back for sacrifice than to just kill them. I know that's what you told me to do, but it didn't make sense to me. Now it's called rationalistic worship. When God's directions don't make sense, just change them. Innovate. When he has given us no room for them. So Samuel confronts Saul and says, your kingdom is gone. God's raised up another man, your kingdom is gone completely. Now again, Saul seems to react in a way that suggests that he might finally be getting it right. For verse 25 of chapter 15 says, Now therefore please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Now you know, after all, what more can you ask? When someone is finally convicted and they say, please forgive my sin, I want to worship God again, that's, a, that's appropriate. That's the attitude that God wants from any one of us, no matter where we are. So we think, oh, Saul's finally got it, right? Wrong. 
Look below the surface and you see there's something else going on. <laughs> For a few verses before that in chapter 12 we read. Uh, chapter 15 verse 12. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was Saul Samuel. Saul came to Carmel and he has set up a monument in his own honor. Who was he really interested in worshipping? You see what happens when impatient worship and utilitarian worship and rationalistic worship get entrenched with us. We start worshipping self. We will never stop worshipping. You see, we're all wired to be worshippers. We are hardwired to be worshippers. The only question is, what or who will you worship? And a life that is increasingly gripped by impatient, utilitarian and rationalistic worship ends up in self-worship, which then fuels more of that kind of impatient and rationalistic worship. And there are three dimensions of the self-worship that come up. For 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 30. Then he said, now listen, look, look at this. He says almost the same thing. Remember earlier he said, I have sinned. Come back with me, forgive me so I can worship God. Notice what he says in verse 30. I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. And return with me that I may bow. Is he interested in worshipping God? No, he says, Saul, Samuel, please come with me so I will look good before my elders. Come with me so I can worship and look good before Israel. He was completely concerned about image maintenance. When self-worship begins to take over, managing our image, how we, comes across, how we come across, becomes the all-important thing. This is very serious for me, someone like me. When I sit here saying, if I ever start preaching so that I will look good in the eyes of the elders in this church, God will take that very seriously. This is not something I preach easily. I preach this sermon more often than anyone else because I need to tremble regularly before God. I'm doing it right now. Image maintenance. Every one of us is vulnerable to that. And then, very closely related, Saul said to Samuel, verse 24, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your word because I feared the people. Fear of man. Whenever we start focusing on managing image before other human beings fear of human beings gets in the way Os Guinness once said in a sermon he said he was sitting across the table from uh, a pastor of a very large mega church and, and this pastor said every Sunday when I get up to preach and look into the eyes of my people I'm afraid he said because I know I'm only one or two bad sermons away from losing my congregation to another preacher down the street. And Guinness said we are developing a leadership that has become codependent on followership. That's what happens when we fear human beings. The Bible says the fear of man is a snare. And then these two things set up for other things. For chapter 15 verse 19 says, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? This is instant gratification. A life that is continually, increasingly taken over by image management and by the fear of God, slowly begins to weaken us on the inside so we can no longer say no to the things that are not good for us. Because you see the insides start getting dry. And then instant gratification is something that we become vulnerable to. This is probably one reason why many Christian leaders fail sexually. When they started out, it was not even on their radar screen to begin with. But because they failed in these other areas, because worship became impatient, utilitarian, rationalistic, because image management and codependent leadership began to take over, their insides were getting empty, and then all of a sudden they find they cannot say no. And for somebody else, it may not be that. It may be shopping, it may be food, it may be gambling, it may be any other kinds of anything. Anything else is, that's a quick hit. 
So now we have the answer to the question, right? What took a man with such an amazing beginning and precipitated him into that horrible ending which finished with suicide? We have the answer. We'd never have guessed. It was a fatal flaw. One fatal flaw. Impatient worship, utilitarian worship, rationalistic worship that leads to self-worship. And look where it began. With impatience. Impatience especially when it comes to the things of God. By the way, this is what a driven man or a driven woman looks like. Impatient, especially with the things of God. Utilitarian, they use God for their purposes, not the other way around. And rationalistic worship. If it doesn't make sense to me, I decide. And all the while managing image with the subsequent fear of man and vulnerability to instant gratification is working away on the inside. You know, this is not an incidental connection. Most of us who are Christians know about the sin of the golden calf, right? When immediately after their conversion, uh, of their, their being constituted a nation, while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, the Israelites were down in the valley already being led into the sin of idolatry. It was, it was so fundamental a sin that that spirit of idolatry never left them until the horrors of the exile. What most of us don't remember, if we ever noticed, is how the chapter 32, chapter 32 of Exodus, which describes the sin of the golden calf. You know how it starts? It says, when the people saw that Moses had gone for a long time. It started with impatience. Impatience led to idolatry. This is not an incidental, cute little story. This is a fundamental principle. This is how serious it is. Impatience with the things of God. You know, so now you say to me, this is an interesting story, interesting analysis, we can listen to it. But it all happened 3,000 years ago. What does that have to do with you and me today? So, let me just kind of get to the second part of the sermon by looking at the fatal flaw, 2015 AD version. First of all, impatient worship. I'm not like Sing Saul, I don't have armies to fight. My troops aren't running away. I don't have to put on battle armor, everybody. But every morning when I wake up, I have another army that comes at me. It's called my to-do list. Every morning when I wake up, I have a thing. My work never is finished. Sham will often ask me at the end of the day, are you done? The answer is always no. And, and there is immediately all the things that I have to get done today, because then I can get all the done, stuff done tomorrow, so that come Saturday evening at 6.30, I can actually dare to stand before the people and preach. And that doesn't even take into account all the unexpected things that are likely to happen, that you're hoping and praying will not happen. And so immediately, immediately, there is a choice that I'm precipitated into. Is my worship that day going to be patient or impatient? Am I going to be like Saul, get it over with so I can get on to the things that really matter and tick those items off my to-do list, important though they are, just like yours? How will, how will I let the troops scatter for a while? What kind of convictions sustain us to make the right choices at those times? You have your to-do list too. They're no less important than mine. And maybe they hammer away at you as soon as you get up every morning. I know they do for me. Here's the one, here's the central conviction I think that is crucial for this. That God 
is outside of time. And therefore he is Lord and Master of time. And that when we get patient before God. And down tools. That a miracle of time happens. No he will not give us more time. He only did that twice in the whole Bible. He's not likely to make the sun stop for you. Or for me. But what happens is that the eternal God. Touches the remainder of the time. And he touches the person who is going into that time. And this is the miracle that happens. Eternity touches and transforms time and us. And for me it has happened in many ways. Uh, Sermons have come together faster sometimes. Or God has already given the material a week before. Because he knew what he was setting me up for that particular week. When the troops were coming at me. Appointments get cancelled. Meetings get done a lot faster. And it's not just for pastors. Many years ago, I remember Sham waking up one morning. It was a Friday morning. We had 16 people coming for dinner that night. And so her troops were scattering first thing in the morning. Right? Lots of things to do. Extra things to do. And so there was that same temptation. But just the previous night in our small group, we had been working through some of these issues. So she decided to just kind of get down to patient worship before she did anything else. At the end of the day, after everybody had gone, as we were going to bed, she said, you know, it was very interesting today. While I was ironing some tablecloths or whatever, she said, they just popped into my mind from out of nowhere, a whole new way of making the dish that I'm making. She said, I actually ended up with an hour to spare at the end of this day. That's the miracle of time touched, being touched by eternity. If we are patient with our worship. That's the conviction that will sustain us. It's an act of faith, you see. And I have to say this to you. I have failed many times. I've been like Saul. Although by the grace of God, as my years have gone on, I've, that's become less and less of an issue. But I can say this to you. He has never failed. Never ever have I been quiet and patient in my worship that he has not done what he promised he would do. Touch and transform time. What about utilitarian worship? Uh, you remember the old commercial, things go better with Coke? Yeah. Sometimes we... We take that attitude over into our prayers. We pray our worship because things go better with prayer. The only problem with that is there's no guarantee they will. Because God's not interested in our patient worship so things can grow smoothly. They may, but they may not. He's, he's more interested in preparing us for whatever he's preparing for us for the day to come. It may be that that day is not going to go smoothly and therefore that's why all the more desperately you need to have that work of God, God's work worked into you that day. Corporately, we all know this. Remember a few years ago at the end of solemn assembly, which by the way is a prolonged time of patient worship before God. Nothing utilitarian about it because we have broken hearted confession before God for three days. Pastor Nancy suddenly went home. So was that... Were things going smoothly because we did that? Or was God using an entire solemn assembly to prepare us for a tragedy that none of us were thinking about? You see how that's what utilitarian worship is. I'll just pray so that things will go better for me. Or or another version of this, this might surprise you at first, is seeking guidance. And you say, are we not supposed to seek guidance? Of course we are supposed to seek guidance. And isn't, isn't seeking guidance from God worship because we are depending on Him? That's true. That's true. But... If that request for guidance is not set in the context of a heart-to-heart relationship with God, then something's amiss. 
I think I shared this with you a few weeks ago, you know. It's probably like a husband and wife. Every morning, the only relationship they have is getting to-do lists from each other. And it'll be a very functional household, but that's about all you can say for that. No, this worship is all about us developing a heart-to-heart relationship with God, where the relationship is the end, and in that context, requests for guidance make a lot of sense. When you take the request for guidance and wrench it out of a relational context, then it has become utilitarian worship. I remember kind of being rocked on my heels when Bruce Walke, professor of Old Testament at Regent College, said, a preoccupation with the will of God is essentially pagan. And you know that. Once all I have to do is to think about the pagan religious background that I've come out of. It's all about horoscopes and stars and what is God's will and doing the right thing. That's essentially pagan. God's not interested in finding out His will. It's the relationship that's at the key. Wrench it out of that and worship becomes utilitarian. Now the last one is perhaps the most surprising one. The connection is not clear. Rationalistic worship. Now what is that? Like we don't have to worry about animals and all that visible reality stuff. That for Saul made absolutely no sense. We're not commissioned by God to go and kill people. And so we spare kings when we should kill them. All of that is completely irrelevant to us. So how do we apply rationalistic worship to us? I never really clicked until I read something that Eugene Peterson wrote in one of his books about Baal worship. Remember how the worship of Baal was a huge thing? He characterized the essence of Baal worship in in a few beautiful words. He says the emphasis of Baalism was subjective worship. The desires that inflamed the soul were fulfilled in the act of worship. The transcendence of God was overcome in the ecstasy of feeling. Sensory participation was featured. It was worship, and this is the key part, it was worship that sought fulfillment through self-expression, worship that accepted the needs and passions of the worshipper as its raw material. Its canons were that worship should be interesting, relevant, and exciting. How often have you heard that? What's he saying? What's he saying? He said the essence of Baal worship is when the raw materials for worship are my needs and my passions. Does that mean feelings have no place in worship? No. Piper said it so well when he said, where feelings for God are dead, worship is dead. There's no such thing as worship that doesn't involve feeling. The question, the question is, what is the raw material for that worship? What produces those feelings within us? Is the question. William Temple, uh, Archbishop once, I think it was, he once, uh, um, at least from the Anglican Church, he had a definition of worship that I've shared with you before, which really gets at that. It's the very antithesis of Baal worship. He says, worship is our response to God's self-revelation. And he went on to say that his worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. It's to feed the mind with the truth of God. It's to purge the imagination by the beauty of God. It's to open the heart to the love of God and devote the will to the service of God. You see how different this is from Baal worship? In other words, feelings properly belong in worship when those feelings have been stirred and brought up, created and and inflamed by something about the person of God or the work of God. But when those feelings are things that are really in some way or another stimulated by our needs and our passions, then we need to be careful. By the way, this is why, this is why True worship, even in a corporate sense, is never a merged mass response. Because you see, different people sitting in a congregation may be seized differently. If, if somebody sitting here has been, is still trembling before what God thinks of impatience, 
You're, you're not praising right now. You're just confessing. You're anguishing in your heart. That, your, your conscience has been quickened by the holiness of God. That's your worshipping already. You're not really interested at that moment in standing up and clapping your hands. Somebody else on the other hand might be, have their imagination seized by beauty. This is what produces physical responses in me. Not because somebody says, stand up, sit down, clap your hands or anything like that. But sometimes, usually when, when poetry is set to music, in, in, in the songs that we sing, both old and new, that combination starts stirring up my parrot. That's when my hands go up. That's when I start swaying. Because it's a response to God. And it doesn't matter whether anybody else is doing it or not, because God may be working differently in different people's lives. That's what makes worship authentic. When you are responding to whatever God is doing, he, His work becomes the raw material for your feelings. That's the difference. And I think this is a form of rationalistic worship that we have today, which makes us wonder about a lot of what goes on as worship. So here's the fatal flaw, 2015 AD version. Impatient worship, which is my to-do list. Utilitarian worship, the things go better with coke mentality, seeking guidance. Rationalistic worship, fueled by my feelings and desires, not God. I want to draw this message together by asking us one more question. We'll go back to the story of Saul one more time. And you will discover as you read 1 Samuel chapter 9-31, till which is what we've covered today, 22 chapters. The story of Saul is interwoven with the story of another king. His name is David. And as Saul was going on the downward spiral, David was going up. Now David was far from perfect. Saul attempted murder six times. David actually did it. And David's murder of Uriah was a cover-up for his sin of adultery. And we don't read about Saul committing adultery anywhere in his whole life. Now come on, something's wrong here, right? You've got impatience on the one hand, and you've got adultery and murder on the other hand. What's the matter? Has God suddenly changed his mind? Is God a capricious God that kind of chooses to overlook sins in his favorite's life and heaps it upon some guy that he doesn't like? Looks like it, doesn't it? I mean, adultery and murder will get us excommunicated from a local church and in trouble with the law. At least murder will, adultery may not. But in the impatience, nobody worries about impatience. Well, first of all, so, so you've got to dig deeper. You've got to dig deeper. Because those are good questions to ask. Here's the answer as best as I've been able to figure out, and I think it fits with the tenor of Scripture. God dealt severely with David for his sin. His sons did what he did much worse. Rape, murder, fratricide. His family was a total disaster. Not only that, the nation of Israel never recovered. It was at its zenith under David's life and it started spiraling downward out of control until they ended up in exile. Oh no, God dealt very seriously with David for his sin. The one difference though was his heart. (laughs) Because when Nathan pointed it out to him, thou art the man, he was flat on his face. The thought of being separated from God was something he couldn't handle. And his epitaph was written in these words. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. This was a passionate center of David's heart. 
The adultery was ugly. The murder was ugly. There were massive consequences for it. But it was at the surface. The heart longed for God. Saul, on the other hand, had a fairly smooth exterior. But there was nothing in the middle. Impatient, utilitarian, rationalistic. When it comes to worship. If you want a couple of images, think of two things. A balloon and a golf ball. Balloons nice and smooth on the outside. Nothing on the inside. Golf balls got all kinds of pock marks. You know, even a new golf ball is pockmarked. One that's been hit a lot has a lot more. But its center is rock solid. Try and take a pin. Take a pin and poke a balloon. You know what happens to it? You poke a golf ball with the pin and the pin breaks. Because the center is rock solid. That's David. This is Saul. That's why God was exercised about. See, ultimately, we're all writing one of two epitaphs. We're either writing the epitaphs of Saul, surely I have acted like a fool and I've erred greatly. Or we are imperfect, sinful people like David. But we say, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. You know, David's story is the one that gives us hope. This has nothing to do with the fact that we are imperfect people. We're all imperfect people. Drivenness and imperfection are two very different things. (laughs) The picture is that of a driven man. And that's what we need to be careful about. Imperfect people God welcomes. (laughs) If you would say, this is what I want, Jesus. I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I want us to take a few moments and just be quiet. And I'm going to put that slide back again. Just take a look at it. What's God saying to you today? Where's... Where is that direction characterizing some of your lives? What do you need to lay at his feet this morning? Look inside for a few moments. Lord Jesus, we thank you that David's longing and desire is actually possible for every one of us because of you. In his wildest dreams, David could never have waltzed into the Holy of Holies. For all his passion for you and for all his longing to build the temple, he knew that he dare not walk inside that Holy of Holies. But we thank you that we can because of Jesus. That any time, anywhere, any place, any time, we have access into your most intimate presence. Thank you that... Jesus purchased such a privilege for us that our high priest has entered in and we can go with him. So however weak it may be, we want to fan that longing into flame by expressing it to you. We desire to seek you in your temple to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. We confess before you, Lord, that what we need more than anything else is continual revelations of your beauty. And thank you that the Holy Spirit was given to make Jesus known, to make the Father known and to magnify Jesus. That's what you said, when the Spirit comes, He will take of me and make it known to you. So on this Pentecost Sunday, we again say, we want to be ravished by the beauty of Jesus. This is our greatest need, whether we know it or not. We express that desire to you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.
Last night uh, on the evening before the evening service I was working out downstairs in the, my basement listening to the news and there was the news about some uh, some mother who had started an organization in the states her son I guess had died overseas in, in battle and before he left on his last tour of duty his words to his mother had been if not me then who so those five words kind of became the rallying cry and they were talking about the power of words of words I want to bless you with four words today, not five. You know what they are? Let the troops scatter. When the to-do list comes rushing at you, when you are precipitated into that crisis of that choice between patient or impatient worship, I want these four words to be engraved on your heart by the Spirit today, that they may rise up from within you and say, Let the troops scatter. I'm waiting before God. Go in Jesus' name.